Daniel chapter 4 tonight. I want to overview this, this chapter. I think it's one of the more intriguing ones you'll find in your Old Testament. However, one of the most common endings, or maybe I should ask it as a question. What's the most common ending for almost every fairy tale ever known? Happily ever after, right? That's the little cute saying that's put at the end of your famous fairy tales when everything comes together. The, the prince has become a prince again after being a frog or whatever, and the kingdom is happy and everyone's happy. Happily ever after. I think that little phrase is actually a lot more impactful than we might realize. It's not just a cute thing that's put on the end of uh, stories and fairy tales. I think it's actually something that reveals something that's deep within our hearts. I think it's actually uh, revealing of what we all want. We all are craving some sort of resolution to this world. We understand that the world is broken. We understand that there's problems in the world and we want a resolution. We want something to be resolved to where we can have a happily ever after. I think they're actually uh, happily ever afters are inescapable signs of the fall. I think that if you crave for one, it's because you know that there's something wrong and you want it to be fixed. You want it to be remade. And I think that's kind of what I get out of Romans chapter 8. You don't have to turn there, but remember where Paul is talking about uh, the creation. He actually even says creation itself is groaning for the day when it can be remade. That's, uh, he's talking about even the world itself is crying out to be remade and have its own sort of happily ever after, you might say. And I think what we find here in Daniel chapter 4 is sort of an anticlimactic ending after Daniel chapter 3. Because Daniel chapter 3 kind of seemingly gives us a happily ever after. If you're familiar with Daniel 3... You know it to be the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or I like to call them the Hebrew Three. They are captives, of course, from the land of from he, their Hebrew captives in the land of Babylon, and you know that they have been miraculously delivered from the flames. Look at verse twenty-seven. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together, saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. You remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar, thinking him of himself as a god, manufactured a golden image in his likeness and forced them to bow down to it. And they refused courageously And they're thrown into this furnace. And a miracle happens in the furnace because the Son of God appears in the midst of them and delivers them out of it. And of course this miracle has an enormous impact on the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He uh, has seen what has happened. He has seen this amazing thing that has happened. And that he's cast these men into a burning, fiery furnace. Which you remember, if you uh, read a couple verses before verse 27. He heats up the furnace seven times hotter than what has ever been heated before. Because he's so enraged at these young men. And he throws them into it and they are delivered out of it. And I love that verse 27. With not even a hair of their head has been singed. It's truly a miracle, and witnessing this miracle should have changed 
Nebuchadnezzar, but it did not. It did not change him. His faith was not stoked by this miracle. He sh- this should have been Nebuchadnezzar's happily ever after. In which he repents of his sin and falls on his knees in worship of God. And it actually might, if you read it quickly, it can appear that way. Look at verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants and that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other god that can deliver After this sort. You read his language and it sounds right. It sounds good. It sounds like he is acknowledging the power of Jehovah. And he has uh, recognized that he can't do anything up against this God. But I love how it's phrased here. Because it reveals Nebuchadnezzar's heart. You notice he says that it's not his God. It's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He repeats it twice. He's not necessarily claiming this God for himself. He's just acknowledging this Jehovah that these Hebrews believe in. He's acknowledging him amongst the long list of gods he himself worships. He's just adding him to the pantheon of gods that he is claiming are good and right to worship. And that's because Nebuchadnezzar was an incredibly prideful man. We know that by this story. By the story of Daniel 3, he was just so impressed with himself and thought of himself as such a powerful king that he thought of himself as a god. And so that's where you get the real crux of the matter in Daniel 3. Because the real reason why he is so angry at these Hebrew captives is because he viewed their denial of his command as sort of an attack on his deity. You see, he thought of himself as such a divine person that when they were defying his orders, it was like they were attacking his godship. And so yet still, even despite all the ample opportunity that's presented to him in this chapter to repent, he doesn't. He's still the king of his own heart. He sits on the throne of his heart and that's where he wants to stay. And that's where you come to Daniel chapter 4 because it presents this matter, this unresolved matter of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. He's still looking for resolution. And it's a chapter that's written in his own words. Look at verse number one of chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar, the king unto all people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. This is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony right here. He is giving you his testimony of the events that happened after that burning fiery furnace from Daniel chapter 3. And it's a testimony of his very life. Look at verse 2 again. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. You notice the change in Nebuchadnezzar's language there? He's not saying the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did this. He's saying it's his God that is doing this now. 
We can spoil the story for you. I'll, I'll be the spoiler at the beginning of the outset, at the outset of this chapter, that Nebuchadnezzar was radically changed by the events of his life after that miracle of the furnace. Changed by God himself. And in this chapter, I think we have this sort of battle is recounted for us. A battle with, we could say, the beast of the field which was in his own heart. The beast of the field which was in Nebuchadnezzar's own heart. And which I might venture to say is within all of our hearts. And that beast is pride. Tonight I want to look at three quick lessons on pride. And the hope that's found in its defeat. Three quick lessons we can find here in this chapter. First of all, our first lesson is a lesson of pride's delusion. A lesson of pride's delusion. Look at verse number four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house... And flourishing in my palace, I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I a decree to bring all in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. So he has another troubling dream. This reminds us of Daniel chapter 2 where something similar happens to him. He's terrorized and troubled by a nightmare. And he seeks out his quote unquote wise men who aren't very wise. And they're unable to make sense of the nightmare there in chapter 2. And here again they're stumbled. They're stumped. They don't know what to make of this, these visions that Nebuchadnezzar is having. They don't know what to do with uh, what he's uh, being troubled by. And so he summons Daniel. Look at verse 8. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. So he goes on to tell Daniel of his dream. He tells him of this great and lofty and high tree which reaches to the heavens. Look at verse 10. Thus were the visions of my head in my bed. I saw and beheld a tree in the midst of the earth. And the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong. And the height thereof reached unto the heaven. And the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. And it grew, and it grew even larger, and it grew even more fair and more majestic. Look at verse 12. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof was much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. This tree that Nebuchadnezzar sees is beautiful, it's tall, it's strong, it's mighty, it's an imposing force, and it's an imposing symbol of safety too. Notice all of the animals that have safety and security and sustenance in this tree. But look at verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree. And cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls 
from his, ban- from his branches. I, 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 this tree was not indestructible. It might have been uh, imposing, but it was not an indestructible tree. And an angel in his dream comes down and starts to chop it down, hew off its branches, and remove all sense of majesty from this tree. And he does so. Look at verse 15. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This great tree is reduced to nothing. It's reduced from, uh, from a great and beautiful and imposing uh, tree to a nothing To a stump. This great tree has been disgraced. Daniel hears this dream. And he is troubled. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. Was astonished for one hour. And his thoughts troubled him. He is severely troubled by this dream. Much like Nebuchadnezzar was. Perhaps because he knew what the dream meant. And I think... That's what's, what's happening in Daniel's heart. He knew what was going on. He knew what was happening. And he just perhaps didn't have the heart to tell this king. But he begins to interpret the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. After Nebuchadnezzar begs him to. Look at what he says. The king spake and said. Belteshazzar let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said. My lord the dream be to them that, hair, that hate thee. And the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest. Which grew and was strong. Whose sight re- height reached the unto the heaven. And the sight thereof to all the earth. Whose leaves were fair and the fruit thereof much. And in it was meat for all. Under which the, the beasts of the field dwelt. And upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king. That art grown. And become strong, for thy greatness is grown, and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. This strong and beautiful tree that Nebuchadnezzar was seeing, this, this great and beautiful oak perhaps that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, it was him. It was a symbol of himself. He was the tree that would soon be cut down. And that's what Daniel says to him. He says, you are the tree. It reminds me of Nathan telling David, remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12, you are the man. You are this tree. It's you. What you saw was a vision of yourself. That this great tree would soon be humbled. This great tree is representative of Nebuchadnezzar who would soon feel this uh, devastating hammer of God's humbling. He says, he goes on, and whereas the king saw a watcher, verse 23, and an holy one coming down from heaven and saying, hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. That they shall drive thee from men. And thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make thee to eat grass and as oxen. And they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over thee. Till thou know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men. And giveth it to whomsoever he will. 
is a vision of Nebuchadnezzar's humbling that was soon to come about. It was a humiliation that would be swift, it would be complete, it would be devastating. He would be driven from society and be forced to live as a beast of the field, it says in verse 25. The one who here thought himself so godlike would be reduced to nothing but a beast. I think to learn that he's just merely human after all. (laughs) He's there to learn his humanity, his humility, his smallness. And I love, though, verse 27, because Daniel gives him this warning. He gives him this interpretation. This is going to happen, Nebuchadnezzar. This is about to happen in your life. You're going to be cut down. You're going to be reduced and disgraced and humbled. But he gives this caveat. Look at verse 27. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. If it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility, he gives him the option of repentance. You see, he gives him a way out of this terrible nightmare. A way to avoid this nightmare becoming reality. He says, Daniel is basically giving him the option of grace. He says, turn off, break off thy sins by righteousness. Repent of all of your greatness, king. And you might be able to lengthen thy tranquility. You might be able to avoid all of this. But Nebuchadnezzar ignores the warnings. Nothing happens to him for an entire year. Look at verse 28. Or excuse me, 29. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, and look at what he says. After this warning, after the warning of Daniel that you are about to be cut down for your own greatness. Look at what he says. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Look at who is getting the glory. Look at who is being ascribed all of the majesty, all of the beauty, all of the glory of his kingdom. It's himself. I have built it by my own power, by my own strength, by my own ability. I am the one who is doing this. And he's surveying, I imagine, he's surveying his palace as he's walking on the rooftops. And he's just overlooking this amazing thing that he thinks that he has accomplished. This amazing thing that he uh, perhaps, yes, probably had a big part to play in. If you look at the history of Babylon, you will know that it's believed that during this time, he was doing lots of things in the world uh, in in order for world domination. In about 587 BC, he slaughters all of the Egyptians. And then in 586, the same king Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys Jerusalem. And it's also believed that during this time, these 12 months, he has also completed the construction of the Hanging Gardens, which was considered uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you could say that during this time, he hasn't seen any sort of reduction. He hasn't seen any sort of um, anything happening to him that was in his dream. Actually, the very opposite. He has, been, uh, he has had a kingdom that has thrived. He's brought Babylon to the, the apex of world dominion. But I love what happens next. Because as he 
is walking on this rooftop as he is overlooking his empire and delighting in his accomplishments. And he's giving glory to himself. He's giving in to the delusion of pride. He's giving in to the way that pride blinds us to believe that we have done it by ourselves. Uh, He's giving in to the idea that, that he is responsible for all of the goodness and success and strength and majesty and prosperity in the life of his kingdom. And look at verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. Here we see, secondly, not only a lesson of pride's delusion, but here we see a lesson of pride's demise. Because I love that first phrase, While the word was still in his mouth. He hadn't even finished his sentence of ascribing glory to himself. And all of the things that Daniel said were were to come to pass came to pass in Nebuchadnezzar's life. His nightmare became a reality. Verse 31 again. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' Clause. Nebuchadnezzar has been turned into a beast. He's been turned into the fullness of the beast of pride. <laughs> He's literally become something that he never wanted to become. Pride transformed this once noble ruler and majestic king who is ruling over half the world into a savage monster. A monster who, uh, has, uh, whose hairs were like eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And I would say that metaphorically, I think pride has been doing the same thing ever since. Pride continues to work in people's lives and manifest itself at much like this savage monster. It's the beast of the field within all of our hearts. It's pride. It lurks and it seeks to delude you into thinking that you are responsible for your success. That you are the one who has made all of it happen. And it asks you to feed it. And once you do, it will certainly rear its ugly head when you least expect it. And this is what happens. This exactly was what happens when we think that we can sit on God's throne and be okay. When actually we can think much like Adam and Eve that we can be like God and be okay. Remember Genesis 3? Because pride is what got us into this mess in the first place. Pride is the reason why we have this Bible. It's because of the pride of Adam and Eve. The fact that they were tempted by the fact that they could be as gods, Satan said to them. He didn't tempt them with something that was low or beneath them. He didn't tempt them with some base or thing of debauchery or wickedness. He tempted them with the fact that they could be like gods. He was playing to their pride. He was playing to the fact that they too wanted to be controlling over their own lives. Much like we want to. 
I want to control my life. I want to know what's happening. I want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. I want to be able to make my own happiness when I'm not feeling happy. I want to be able to control the things that are happening in my life. I want to be like God. I think we all do. That's our sin nature. It's Satan's great ruse over humanity. The fact that he has tempted us to believe that we can be like God. That we can play that part. Pride is that beast of the field that lurks in our hearts. It's always based on a lie. Pride is always based on the lie that we are sufficient. The lie that we are sovereign. The lie that we are superior. That we're not going to fail like other people. That we're not going to mess up like other people. That we can handle it. That we can make it because we're stronger. We're better. Pride tells us that. Pride tells us that we don't have to worry about anyone else. We just have to seek after our own glory. Pride tells us that we don't have to worry about anyone else but ourselves. Because we are who is important. We are who is most important. Not anyone else but ourselves. This is what Nebuchadnezzar did. It's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is just this, what we have seen here tonight in Daniel 4. It's the, it's the disbelieving of God's goodness in a fabrication of your own. That's what sin is. Sin, that's what we can see in the garden. Remember in the garden, they have been afforded everything at their fingertips. They have want for nothing. And yet the one thing that they're not supposed to do is what they want. Is <laughs> the thing that they desire, the thing that they look at, the thing that they lust after. They've been given everything. And yet the one thing that they want, they cannot have. And therefore, they, they crave it all the more. It's a disbelieving in God's goodness. They try to make their own. They try and make their own goodness by saying, we can be like God's. We can have that and be okay. We can eat of this fruit and be okay. This is the crux of all sin. The core of all sin is just that. It's mankind substituting himself in God's place. It has us looking, sin has us looking for uh, uh, something eternal amongst temporal things. And it, and it promises that we can find everything that we long for outside of what God has made. Outside of what God has ordained. But sin never delivers on its guarantees. And for all of man's efforts at finding peace on his own, he never finds it. He never will find it so long as he is looking for it in himself or looking to create it for himself. But such is the delusion of pride. Such is the blindness of pride. It, it makes us believe that we can be like God and we can be okay. And we don't see it for what it is. Pride is an upward invasion. You're invading God's territory. Such is what Adam and Eve were doing. It's almost like they were committing insurrection against God. They were attempting to invade his rightful place as the sovereign rule maker and creator and designer. And the one who held everything into order. They were invading God's space. Nebuchadnezzar was invading God's space as the rightful king of his heart. I have to say, I have done the same thing. I've sat on the throne of my own heart very often. 
I'm a, we are all at times prideful people and we don't realize how much of an offense it is to God. It's an upward rebellion. It's saying, I can be like God and I can make a better God than you can. I can do better. I can do it better than you can. It's pretending like we don't need God. And like in Nebuchadnezzar, we are often tempted to sort of look at our lives, to take stock, take inventory of what we have been given, and to sort of determine that we were responsible for this. Look at all that I've done. Look at the job that I have. Look at my, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my spouse. Look at, look, at all my fam- look at my family. Look at my kids. Look at my house. I've done this. It's by my sacrifice, it's by my blood, sweat, and tears, my 40, 60, 80 hours a week doing this. I make a pretty good God. I make a a pretty good person to serve. So everyone serve me. Everyone come and give me things. I'm the one who has done this, so you need to serve me. That's pride's delusion and it's pride's demise because that is the, the death knell of relationships. And like Nebuchadnezzar, I think our humiliation won't be very far off when we think that we are in control. And for Adam and Eve, that meant exile. They were exiled from the garden. And for Nebuchadnezzar, that meant a a terrible trip into sort of an animalistic madness. And for you and me, I don't think there's any predicting what it might mean. But I'll have to say this. There's no questioning that it will happen. God doesn't let us ride on his coattails for very long before he makes us stoop down to realize who we are. We are nothing after all. We aren't gods. We aren't in control. But thirdly, I want to look very quickly at the end of the chapter. Because we have the delusion of pride and pride's demise. But it's not without hope because look at, ver- look at the end. Because at the end we have a lesson of pride's undoing. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor, and my counselors and my Lord sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All whose works are truth. And his ways, judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. You notice the change in Nebuchadnezzar's heart? You notice the change, it's just in the very language. He goes from saying that he is the one who is responsible for everything. And he says, let all the inhabitants of earth know that they are nothing. That they can't stand up to this God who can do whatever he wants in this world. They are nothing. This is the hope of Daniel chapter 4. And I think it's the hope of every single story. It's the hope of all of our stories. 
That we see Nebuchadnezzar lifting up his eyes to heaven and realizing who he is. He's realizing firsthand that his kingdom and his life are not forever. It is fickle. It is, fu- it is futile. It is failing. His, his life, though, is ruled by a true and better sovereign. It's ruled by God. And Nebuchadnezzar then goes from a one who is persecuting the Hebrew three, persecuting the faithful of God, to now he's witnessing to the faith. What an enormous change in Nebuchadnezzar's life. This is a, a testament, I like to call, to God's violent mercy. It was a, a violent thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. In that he was turned literally from human into beast. And he lived as one for seven years. But it was also the mercy of God. Because such is what it took to make the scales fall off of Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. That he might see himself for what he really is. He is nothing after all. And God can do whatever he wills in this life. And he is the king of heaven. Not him. He is the king of all. Not Nebuchadnezzar. It's a violent mercy. It's a mercy that shakes us. It's a mercy that forces us to our knees. And sometimes we need that. Sometimes God has to do that. He has to sort of dent and deface our own glory that we have in ourselves. That we might rejoice in his glory. Or he has to uh, plunder our made up kingdom. So that we might find our joy in his kingdom. Or sometimes God has to crush us. In order that he might show us that he is our Christ. And show us how beautifully and wonderfully he can remake us. Remake those who are crushed. Remake those who are brought low. This is mercy, but it is violent mercy. It is the violent mercy of God. And it's what it takes to beat down and crush the beast of the field in our own hearts. The beast of sin, which is pride. This is what God does for us. This is what God's message is to us. It's his message of a better way than giving into pride. Because you see, like we said, whereas pride is man substituting himself for God, in the gospel, salvation is God substituting himself for man. It's him taking our place instead of we taking his And while that's the nature of sin, while the nature of sin is is man sort of uh, performing an insurrection against God's realm, God says, I am going to incarnate myself in yours. I'm going to bring myself and stoop myself down to your level. And not only that, I'm going to live as you live. And not only that, I'm going to die as you should die. This is God's better way. It's God's constant gospel which constantly seeks to uh, uh, humble us by this very fact that he has humbled himself to this level. Like he says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 that he thought it not robbery to, e- to be equal with God but he took upon himself the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men. And he says later on in that very chapter in Philippians 2 that he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He thought it nothing to do that. He humbled himself for us to, in order to deliver us. He humbles himself to make us into his sons and daughters. He humbles us like he humbles Nebuchadnezzar. 
He lowers us through his violent mercy so that he might lead us into repentance. Lead us into joy. Lead us into flourishing. Not that we have made, but that he gives us. It's the flourishing that he gives us by grace. And sometimes he has to do that by wrecking us. Sometimes he has to do that by bringing us low. You don't have to say it out loud, but I'm sure many of us can testify to times when we have been brought low by God. But such is God's goodness. That he is patient with us. That he seeks to deliver us. And sometimes that takes devastating us, but he seeks to deliver us. And he's always working to bring us home. He's working to bring us to resolution. He's trying to make us see that we can't forge a happily ever after on our own. But he's promised us something way better than a happily ever after. It's eternity with him. And he's giving us that. And he's ushering us into that. And sometimes it takes an undoing of pride in order for us to see it and believe it. I don't know where that you, perhaps you are tonight. But I pray that if you are believing in yourself, that you have accomplished what you have seen in your life, or what you enjoy in your life, you remember who has given you those good gifts. It is God himself. The God who thought it not robbery to equal with God, but was made in the likeness of men for us. The God who, despite our insurrection against him, was unafraid of the incarnation. That he might become like us, to live like us, to die like us. Remember this God. Remember this good God. Let us pray.